under the table? Where? I need to look at the email on my phone and I, I can't find my, did I leave it in the bathroom? Maybe I left it on the counter. Where's, where's the phone? It's at your ear, dummy. You're, you're talking on it. <laughs> have, you, have you done something like that? Have you looked for your glasses when they're on top of your head? Uh, or looked for a pen that was in your pocket? Or tore the house apart looking for keys that are, that are you know, they're in your pants, but you, you're looking everywhere. Um, so maybe you've had a, a similar experience. One of the most dramatic examples of this that I've ever read is a story about the famous millionaire William Randolph Hearst. He read in an art catalog, he read about this incredibly exquisite piece of art, this masterpiece that he determined he had to own this. So he calls up his art agent and he says, I want you to find me this piece. And the agent looked for months and months. He went through you know, every collection and every catalog looking for this, this piece of art. Uh, and, and Hearst said, spare no expense. I want this. I, I, I need to have this. Absolutely. So after several months of tireless searching, the agent finally found it and he reported back, good news, you already own it. It's in a warehouse in a crate that you haven't opened and, and you've had it for many years. It already belongs to you. If we're prone to do that with phones and keys and glasses and paintings, if, if we're prone to look for things that we already have, is it possible that we are also apt to forget that we possess more valuable things, intangible things, things that are fully ours, things that we have complete access to, but which in a moment of insanity, we, we act as if we don't have them. How, how much of what we're pining for, how much of what we want day to day, meaning, purpose, relevance, glory, how much of that is already at our fingertips? How much of it is in our hands? It's already our, ours, and we behave as if we have none of it. And so what we think we're doing in our, in our daily callings, our ordinary lives, we think we therefore have no significance. We have no power. We become very discontent, very frustrated. Our, our displeasure has no boundaries. We become fountains of ingratitude because we don't understand all of the riches of our inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, in, instead of understanding and appreciate what we already have, we easily get sucked into uh, uh, false sales pitches for for uh, the perfect marriage, prescriptions and formulas, for perfect children, perfect career or financial or educational strategies. And the promise is always more power, more blessings, a higher life, a deeper life, as, as if God's resources and his blessings were hidden behind a secret combination. And only a few know the combination and it's really at a remove from us. It's, it's inaccessible to us. We can't have it, and we as assume that we don't already have it. Here's the reality. The reality is you already have the higher life, the deeper life. You already have, child of God, you have glory and peace and dominion through Jesus. You already have the power of God's Holy Spirit resting in you and on you. Peter says this in his second epistle. Listen to what Peter says. This is God's holy word. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given exceedingly great 
and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Peter says you already have all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. You don't need to pray that God would give you those things. What we pray for is that God would make it manifest among us, that, that he would help us see it, to take a hold of it, to, to in the process mortify the flesh and grow up in the things that he's already given us. So throughout the first part of this letter that we've studied, the first part of the letter from the Apostle Paul to the Christian church at Ephesus, throughout the first part of this letter, Paul has been rejoicing in our redemption. He's, uh, he's composed this great, rich hymn of redemption, and he dedicates a verse to each member of the Godhead, each member of the Trinity. The Father has known us and called us before the foundation of the world. The Lord Jesus has redeemed us. The Holy Spirit has sealed us. Uh, unto the day of redemption. The Father has elected, the Son has redeemed, the Spirit has sealed. And this is the great hymn that, that Paul opens with at the beginning of Ephesians. Now he turns in the latter part of the first chapter to this prayer. And this prayer he, he gives us that I read just a minute ago is an intercession. He asks God, it's a petition that God would take what he's done among these Christians taken everything that is already theirs, their great inheritance, and now help them see it, to fill it up, to make it manifest and real, to make it more full right before their eyes. And what Paul is doing here is he's following a very old pattern of prayer that we see all over the Old Testament. We see it in the Psalms. It's very common for a saint to pray, Lord, this is what you've promised this is what you've accomplished. This is all that you've done. And we give thanks for that. And we bless your name for all that you have done. Now, part two of the prayer is help us to see it. Finish it, Lord. Finish what you've started. Accomplish all of your purposes. And those kinds of prayers are all over the Bible. We start with, this is what you've done. And we thank you and we praise your name. Now, finish what you've started. If you want to join me over in uh, the Psalms real quick, I just want to look at two. Psalm 40 is one of these. Um, that, that does this very thing. Uh, Psalm 40 starts out, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. He heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock. He established my steps. Here's everything that God has done for me, everything in his covenant mercy that Yahweh has accomplished for me in the past. And he says, blessed is the man who makes Yahweh his trust. Um, he says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire in verse 6. My ears you have opened. Um, and, and, then, and then in verse 11, he turns a corner. He turns a corner and, and he says, based on everything you've done for me, now, verse 11, do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Yahweh. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. So you've done all this. Now make it more manifest and fill it up and finish what you've started. Verse 13, be pleased, O Yahweh, to deliver me. O Yahweh, make haste to help me. You see the pattern. First, I'm sorry, Psalm 90 is that great Psalm of Moses where Moses does the th same thing. Uh, Moses starts out with this benediction, with this, with this blessing and this thanksgiving to God in, in Psalm 90. Yahweh, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. 
Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, this is everything you've done. And for the first 12 verses, he says, here's, here's what you've done. And then he turns in verse 13 and says, Return, O Yahweh, how long, and have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So you thank God for what he's done. And then on the basis of that, you pray that he goes further and he completes his work. And in this way, the saint who prays this way holds the covenant before God's eyes. There's another example of this. If you've ever flipped through the Book of Common Prayer, you see these short, terse little prayers called collects. Anybody ever seen that word and wonder, collect? What is that? It's like calling God collect? What, what is this? No, it's a collect. That's, that's the name of the prayer. And these short little prayers follow the very same pattern. At the very beginning of a collect, you praise God for something he's done. And on the basis of that, you ask God to bear his arm and make his work seen and known on the earth. This coming Thursday is a great feast day on the church calendar. This coming Thursday is Ascension Day. And from the Book of Common Prayer, here is the collect for Ascension Day. Listen to this. O Almighty God, whose blessed Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. So, so that's what you've done. And here's the petition. Mercifully give us faith to perceive that according to his promise, he abideth with his church on earth, even to the end of the ages. So here's what you've done. Now, Father, fill that up and make it, make it complete. Finish the work that you've started. So I bring this up because that's the very same kind of prayer that opens the uh, letter to the Ephesian church. This is how Paul starts it. He has given us what we studied last week, and he uses way more words uh, than a collect. He uses way more words than a book of common prayer, as, as he is um, uh, wont to do. He, he gives us this great hymn. He gives us this great blessing and praise, verses 1 through 14, and then Verses 15 through 23 are his, his, his petition and his intercession based on the work that he praises God for in the first part. And so when you and I pray this way, and when we copy this pattern of prayer, what we're doing is, is we're praying, uh, praying this way as kind of a covenant memorial. We remind God of his covenant. Now, God doesn't require a reminder. God is not forgetful, but he wants us to remind him of his covenant. We think memorials in the Old Testament were for the people, that God set up these memorials and the people were supposed to see them and remember things. But that's a secondary purpose. Who is the primary audience of God's memorials? They're for God. Back in Genesis 9, 12, God sets up a rainbow after the flood. He puts his bow in the cloud as a sign of the covenant between him and the earth. And he says, I will look at that and I will remember my covenant. Now you can look at it and you can remember his covenant too. That's great. I'm happy for you to do that. But God says, I will see it and I'll remember what I've promised to do. Where else do we see the rainbow? In the book of Revelation, for example, when John sees the throne of God, it's surrounded by a rainbow. That means 360 degrees everywhere God looks, what does he see? He sees rainbow. That means he looks at the earth through the rainbow. He looks at you through the rainbow. He looks at our nation through the rainbow, through his promise to not destroy the earth, but to give life. And so um, he, he sets up these memorials for his 
memory, uh, for his recollection. Remember, let me just give you one or two more examples because it's so good. After, um, after the crossing of the Jordan River, when Joshua brings the people out of the wilderness and Moses has passed away and uh, Joshua brings the people through the Jordan River. Remember, they set up two memorials. One is for the children. Remember, they, Joshua says, take 12 stones and set them up on the side of the river. And he does this by God's direction. So that when your children pass by, they'll say, Dad, what happened here? And you'll say, well, the Lord brought us through with a great deliverance through the, through the waters of the Jordan. God brought us through here. But then Joshua does something else. While the priests are still standing in the dry riverbed and the waters of the Jordan River are held back, he takes 12 stones from the side of the river and puts them in the middle. He builds a memorial in the middle of the river. So the first thing they did was they took the stones out of the river and they put them up over here as a memorial to succeeding generations. But the second thing they did was they took stones from over here outside the river and they put them in the river. And when the priest stepped out of the river, the water flowed back over. Who was that memorial for? It's covered up by water. You can't see it. You're not going to notice it. Who's that memorial for? Joshua set up this memorial to the Lord for the Lord to remember his promises to Israel. Under the Old Covenant, Israel was instructed to offer memorial sacrifices to God. That's what they're called, memorials. And the sacrifices, of course, never took away sins. That's what Hebrew says. Hebrew says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. What were these memorials for? They were held up to God to remind him of the covenant. And so when the smoke of the sacrifice goes up, the smoke is taken up into God's glory cloud. He smells it. He receives it. And he says, oh, yes, I'm at peace with these people. They have obeyed me, and I am at peace with them, and I will continue to be at peace with them. This then explains 1 Corinthians 11 in Paul's instruction on the Lord's Supper. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this as a memorial to me. So when Paul says, you show forth the Lord's death, to whom do we proclaim the Lord's death in the supper? Who is the audience of that proclamation? Well, Jesus says, do this as a memorial of me. At the Lord's table, we are reminding God of his covenant and his promises to us. We're not recreating the sacrifice at the Lord's table, but we're reminding God in a way that he's required us to. We're reminding God of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so all of this is behind the structure of how Paul prays in the first chapter of Ephesians. He prays this kind of covenant memorial prayer. This is what God has done. Now we pray for the fullness of the kingdom to be brought in. Let's, let's walk through these very few verses quickly and, and let's watch how he prays. I'm just going to make a couple of comments. I'm not going to say everything that could be said. I can never say everything that could be said about this. So I've intentionally kept it brief. You're going to say, you didn't talk about that. You're right. I didn't talk about that. Uh, and that's intentional as we only have so much time. So verse 15, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul pulls out two things. He said, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Love and faith for the Lord Jesus and love for the saints go hand in hand. They are joined at the hip as Paul, uh, I'm sorry, as John wrote, as we've been reading in the uh, first epistle of John through this month. Um, John writes, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how, he can, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. What John says, if you hate your brother, you hate God. No, no platitudes, no fancy words, no empty words can change that. You cannot hate your brother and love God at the same time. It's impossible. So Paul puts these two things together here, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for all the saints. And this is going to become more and more relevant because one of the great mysteries he's going to reveal is how God has brought the church together with, with Jesus in a one flesh marriage relationship that the bridegroom and the bride are brought together, the church and Jesus. And so to take that one step further, if you hate your brother, you literally hate the body of Christ. You hate the bride, you hate Jesus. And so Paul puts these two things together, faith in the Lord Jesus and love for the saints. He continues in verse 17. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He prays for these saints that God would give them the spirit of wisdom. Now, we all know about Solomon and his prayer for wisdom, his special prayer and how God answers that. Now, Paul prays, I want you to all be Solomons. I want you all to be filled up with wisdom. God, by the Holy Spirit, through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, I pray that he would give you wisdom. Remember when, Saul, when Solomon prays for wisdom, he says in, in his prayer, he says, I'm a youth. I don't know how to go out or to come in. In other words, I don't know how to enter a room. I don't know how to leave a room. I don't know what to say. I don't know when to be quiet. I don't know how to hold my hands. I don't know how to look somebody in the eye when I'm talking to them. I don't know when to sit or when to stand. I don't know this stuff. This is what I need. I need wisdom. I need, I need instruction and skillful living. And of course, God grants him wisdom. And out of that flowers the Proverbs. It flowers that great instruction in right living and in, in kingly wisdom. And then Solomon also gives us Ecclesiastes that talks about the brevity and the futility of life under the sun. And then we get the Song of Solomon, which is further instruction in that mystery of the love between Jesus and his bride. And all of this Paul is going to go into in, uh, in Ephesians later on in our study. It's instruction in the manners of life that he's going to, to give us. So he prays at the beginning, Lord, give them that wisdom and then he's going to fill it in with all of this other instruction later in the letter. Verse 18, he also prays, this is another petition, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saint. He prays that they might know the hope of their calling, that they might know why God called them to be his people. What did God call us for? His call which was from the, before the foundation of the world, was not a random thing. It was not a purposeless thing. When God calls his saints, he does so with an end in view. God has an objective to calling his people out of the world and redeeming them. He called us to something and for something. So what is it? What did he call us to and what did he call us for? Well, the short answer is that he called us to be joined to Jesus Christ. He called us to be in Jesus. He called us to be in the fellowship of the saints, into the beloved and in fellowship with his holy ones. And, and that's what he mentions here. He talks about the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Where are riches? Where are glory? Where is the inheritance of God? You don't get it by yourself. 
In, in no sense is it, is it yours all alone. It's only found in the community and the fellowship of the saints. That's where it's called. This calling is collective. This calling is communal. This calling is corporate. He also uses the word hope there in verse 18. He says, what is the hope of his calling? When you read the word hope in the Bible, uh, don't think that, that hope means some uncertain, wobbly expectation that maybe things will work out, maybe things will turn out. I hope I, 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 hope I turned off the iron, you know, I, I, I hope I get a parking spot at the mall. I hope I get a good prize in the cereal box. That's how we use the word hope. It's just this kind of like, I'm not really sure. I don't, I don't know. But that's not the way the word hope is used in the Bible. Hope in the Bible is a firm conviction that God is going to do what he said he will do in spite of everything, all the evidence to the contrary that you see in the world around you. God will do what he said he's going to do. It's a firm belief that God is going to continue to be gracious to his people because of what he's already accomplished for them in Jesus. Verse 19. And this is another petition that he prays for. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward those, uh, uh, toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. We're used to reading things like this about Jesus. We're used to singing things about the exaltation of Jesus. Crown him with many crowns. Jesus shall reign where the sun does its successive journeys run. We're used to singing things like this and saying this, the, this exaltation of the Lord Jesus over all things. We say Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King. We all confess that there's not one thing, past, present, or future, that is outside of the dominion and control of the Lord Jesus. You believe that. I believe that, but we live in a world that doesn't believe that. When you say things like that, you say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. What kind of response do you get? Well, they kind of roll their eyes. Unbelievers roll their eyes and they say whatever. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, they don't take it seriously. And I wonder partly if it's because the church at large doesn't live as if it's true. We don't believe that it's that's really true, as, and I'm speaking broadly of the church. We don't act as if Jesus is King. We have other allegiances, we have other loyalties that we put above Jesus. We have other saviors, we have other messiahs that we put right next to Jesus, and so we don't live practically like it's true. But when Paul made this statement in his day, this was a profound declaration to the culture. This was incredibly controversial because you, you take Jesus's name out of this that Paul, that Paul just said, and you put in the name of Caesar, or you put in the the you put in Rome and they could agree with that. They're used to talking this way about Rome and about the rule of Caesar. So you could say then, Caesar is Lord of everything. Caesar is the eternal king. They said that. They said Caesar is the eternal king. Coins, statues, engravings, artwork, inscriptions, songs, mottos, the calendar of festivals, time itself, everything in their culture tempted them to think that all of history and all of time was organized around the imperial authority of Rome and that Rome's authority was eternal and that the center of this was the emperor. It was just the air that you breathe. This is just the life that we live. One Roman city decreed in, in AD 37 
This was a decree. They said, this is the most pleasant age for humanity that is now present. And, and what they're saying is these are the best days ever because of Rome and because of its emperor. One house in Ephesia, uh, I'm sorry, one, in, one house in Ephesus that was excavated had, had this engraving in the home. This was, this was on the wall. Rome, the ruler of all, your power will never die. This was so built into this part of their DNA. This was in them, this, this belief. And so, in other words, they would say, Caesar is seated in the heavenlies, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. And Rome is the power of this age and the age to come. They would say without blinking, Rome is indivisible. Rome can't be broken up. Rome can't be defeated. Rome will last forever. And so into this society, Paul preaches this message, this truth that God has most certainly not organized time and history around Caesar, but he's organized time and history around Jesus. And that Jesus holds supreme authority over all powers and governments and nations, not only then, but now and forever. This is a challenge to all powers, both then and now, all the powers that are opposed to God's people. All those who claim an authority that belongs only to Jesus. You and I, child of God, if we want people not to roll their eyes when we say Jesus is Lord, I would rather they pick up a torch and a pitchfork when we say Jesus is Lord because it means we're getting somewhere. It means that we mean it and that we believe what we're saying and we're living like it's true. And so if we hold this forth in our generation, that means we have to answer the claims of our government and our populace and our institutions. We have to answer them with the authority of Jesus over all things. So for example, the United States is most certainly not indivisible. It is not, it's simply not indivisible. It is not eternal. It does not hold dominion over this age and the age to come. And any pronouncement or act of worship that says it is indivisible is a lie. And it's demanding a kind of worship that belongs to only the Lord Jesus. Only the Trinity is indivisible. All other things can and most certainly will be divisible and dissolvable. Now see, if we said this and we meant it, that would be highly controversial, uh, even around many Christians. This was a highly controversial message in the first century, and it would be for us if we actually believed it and acted like it were true. In verse 22, he says, all things, he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All things are under the feet of Jesus, which means not only is he put as the head over all things, but his foot is on the neck of all tyrants and oppressors and powers and despots. And when he's ready, when Jesus is ready, all he has to do is push down. <laughs> That's all it takes. Everything's under his feet and all he's got to do when he's ready is push down. And he'll crush the head and crush the neck of oppressors. You know what else is under his feet? Satan and all of his minions. They're under his feet. Satan is on a very short leash. Satan is not hiding under your chair. He's not hiding in your cupboard. He's not around the corner. He didn't mess with your engine or let air out of your tires. He didn't give you a cold. You know, the, Satan is on a very tight, short leash. Everything is under the feet of Jesus. 
and in him and with him, Paul says, is his rule in the church. All powers that are subject to Jesus are also subject to the church. The church is his body, the fullness of his identity. The church is the representation of his rule on earth. And so what does Paul say? What is the fullness of Christ? That'd be a great question to just ask and see how many different answers we could get. What is the fullness of Christ? Well, what does Paul say here? What is, the, what is the complete expression of Christ? What is the fullness of his glory? Paul says it's the church. Wait, isn't Jesus complete and sufficient all by himself? Well, not, not according to Paul. Does this mean that Jesus needs, to be, needs the church to be complete and full? Well, listen to what John Calvin says about this, about this very verse. Here's John Calvin's commentary on this. By this word fullness, he means that our Lord Jesus Christ and even God his Father account themselves imperfect unless we are joined to him. As if a father should say, my house seems empty to me when I do not see my child in it. Uh, a husband will say, I only seem to be half a man when my wife is not with me. After the same manner, God says that he does not consider himself full and perfect except by gathering us to himself and by making us all one with himself. See, a groom is not complete without his bride. A shepherd is not complete without a sheep. A head must have its body. So then Jesus finds his full expression in his body, the church. And if, and if this is true, that means the triune God needs his people brought near to him in fellowship with him. It's common for us to think of God as this kind of far off, disaffected deity who's kind of aggravated with us and doesn't really want anything to do with us. And he's always disappointed and he's kind of unapproachable. But Paul says the opposite. Paul says the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. What this means is that the family of the Trinity, the members of the Godhead, the family of the Trinity is not a closed off system. It doesn't exist for itself in itself. The Trinity is not all that the Trinity needs. The members of the Trinity are not satisfied to be all by themselves alone and cut off. And so if the Trinity is not happy to dwell in isolation, if God is not happy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all by himself, if God says, I'm not full until I've got my people with me, my church, then who are you to think that you and your family are just fine in isolation? What have you got going on that the Trinity doesn't have? What kind of arrangement have you got worked out that the Trinity never figured out? The Trinity needs the church. The church is the fullness of Jesus. The Trinity wants his people. God wants his people. And in fact, you and I are astronomically weaker than the members of the Godhead and therefore astronomically in greater need of the life of the body. We also need the church to fill us up and the church needs us, God needs us for his glory to be filled up and manifest and revealed to the nations. What this means, child of God, in quick conclusion is that you are necessary and you are vital to the body of Christ. Your presence, your gifts, your input, your strengths, even your weaknesses are vital for us. You are needed. You are needed by other people and we are less glorious and we are not full without you. We, 
we really don't think that way. When, when a call goes out for, I'm not talking about anything specific here. I'm not talking about, well, is he talking about this thing or that thing? No, not at all. I'm just telling you in general, when a call goes out for help or when there's a gathering or an event or a, or a special time of study or a, or a ministry opportunity, our first thought tends to be, well, what am I going to get out of that? I don't really think I'm going to get much. So I guess I'm going to skip that. I'm going to skip this other thing. We think that way instead of thinking as saints who are ruling in the heavenlies with Jesus, instead of thinking as those with dominion and wisdom, thinking I've got glory in Jesus. I need to share this glory and I need to share in this glory. I need what others have to give me and I need to share what I have. Even when things aren't perfect, especially when things aren't perfect, especially when things are ragged around the edges, we need each other. But instead we kind of kind of live like holdouts. We live like, you know, lone wolves. We, we keep the church at arm's length. We keep each other at arm's length. And at the same time that we do that, we sit and despair that nothing is right with the world. Nothing is right with the church. Nothing is right with our families because everything's just so lost and broken and terrible all the time. Do you see how maybe one thing feeds the other? Do you see how those two things are maybe connected? Do you see how the glory in the church the glory that is in Jesus and in our communion with Him, this glory is revealed, it's filled up, it's made manifest in the love of the saints through our communion together with the triune God. So consider, child of God, brothers, sister, consider that perhaps many of the things you're anxious over, many of the things that you're worried about, it's already in your pocket. It's on your head, it's at your fingertips. It's like the painting. It's like the glasses. It's like the phone. You're, you're like, where, where is it? Where is it? No, no, I've got it. Now pray and believe and hope that God is going to make it more and more real and more manifest as he pulls us together and reveals his glory through us. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. And I pray that you would help by your Holy Spirit further clarify it for us. Help us to meditate on these things. Strengthen us. Draw us together by your Holy Spirit. Uh, strengthen the ties that we have to each other. Do not let us scatter. Do not let us stray. Do not let us wander, but pull us together so that this glory that is in our, it is our inheritance will be revealed among us and be manifest and shine to this community and to the world. We pray not only for this congregation, but for your church across the whole world so that we may lift up the name of Jesus alone as the object of our affection. We pray this in his name. Amen.